You know, it used to be somewhat of an unusual occurrence or circumstance that I or any pastor would stand before a congregation and announce that the sermon had changed due to some cataclysmic world event that involved violence. Really, it just seemed kind of remote. But anymore, it seems as if it's become some of a a normal occurrence, almost to the point where it feels like it's the new normal. These acts or occurrences of violence seem to be the new normal. We're not surprised by them anymore. It doesn't seem to jar us anymore. Or maybe it does, and we're just exhausted by the images and news that we find that it's easier just to change the channel and turn it off. Friday night, uh, we were home painting. I was painting, and Linda was getting some other things done. And, and she went and got the food for the night. I painted. She got the pizza. That's the deal that we worked out. And uh, so she happened to mention, did you hear about what happened in Paris? And I had heard nothing that day because I had not had any news on and so we flipped the TV on and watched CNN, and all of a sudden, you know, there were the images, and there was the numbers, and there was just sirens and lights, and all of a sudden, I could just feel my everything from anxiety to frustration to fear. And in that moment, I don't know why, but it was just symptomatic, I think, of what we sometimes do. I looked at Linda, and I said, you know what? This is pretty good pizza. And then I thought, did I just say this is pretty good pizza? And this is on TV. And then we turned the channel. And I suppose a lot of people do. But we shut it down for a while. And then we came back to it about a couple hours later. Now, I don't know what others did, but that's kind of how I responded in, in being as honest as I can. I think it becomes a matter of how people of faith will choose to live in light of this kind of violence in a world that seems to see violence as an answer, rather than turn the channel and pretending it doesn't exist. And if we don't at least take the time to reflect and ask what I would call this God question, who would God have us be and what would God have us do, I think we run the risk of losing our imagination for a better and different kind of world. Someone wrote it and put it this way. We simply can't envision the world other than it is. Our very imaginations have been commandeered by the principalities and the powers in Ephesians 6. And wars continue to define us. Freedom remains this euphemism for the power to kill. And violence is still viewed as a legitimate way of shaping our world. Now before I go on, let me just say this was not an easy one to change directions on at 10 o'clock at night because I struggle with what to do when there's violence. I know in my heart what I need to be, but I struggle. I struggle with when I see these images on TV. I struggle with the bigger picture and the larger questions and what would I do. I had one person post on my Facebook this past week, so it's a good friend, but I'm not sure if he was having a lucid moment. He posted it and says, I really think you should become president of the United States. And I wrote back, I said, huh? If elected, I will not, see, I will not run, and if elected, I will not serve. That was my answer. I think he was just kidding. I hope so, because I've got too much else to do. 
But I don't know what I would do if I were in those shoes. We need to renew our imaginations, to imagine a different kind of world, a different type of world, to imagine a world of nonviolence, reconciliation, and peace. I read this quote to the class this morning, but I think it's true. Our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. Can you imagine a different world? Can you see it deep within your heart and soul, what a different world would look like, a world in which there was peace, a world in which there was harmony, a a world in which there was forgiveness, a world in which... There was reconciliation. It's hard, I know. It's hard because probably the first thing you might be saying is, it just isn't practical. And what I realized for me is, I have never found Jesus to be practical. I found him to be life-changing. But sometimes he has not been very practical. Usually his life-changing message cashes out into something applicable for my life. It always does. But at first, it just does not seem practical. Jesus, you can't be serious. Love my enemies? Forgive? But do you know what they did to me? Do you know what they said about me? Do you know how they treated me? This passage that Pat read has a little verse in it, a sentence. And goodness is the harvest that is produced from the seeds the peacemakers plant in peace. That image of planting seeds. That image is of you have to start somewhere. The image is of I have to start somewhere. I have to start planting something. When we go back to Indiana, when we were back there in September, uh, one of the things I like to do, and I've said this before, it's kind of quirky, but I love to do it. We go by the old, well, yeah, the parsonage that we first lived in when we were first married, First church I pastored, and we planted a tree. And that tree still stands outside that parsonage. I think I planted a little bit too close to the house, but nonetheless, that's their problem. I planted the tree. (laughs) But it still stands. 25 years later, 30 years. We've been married 30 years. Yeah, 30 years later. It still stands 30 years later, but I can drive by that and look and say, you know, when we planted it, that was a seed. It was just a seed in the ground. And when I saw that seed, it was nothing. It took 30 years for that tree to get where it is, but look at it now. The shade, the home for the birds, the beauty in the yard. It is the power of the long look. The power of starting somewhere at some time, at some point. Because if we never start planting the seeds, nothing will ever grow. It's a wonderful story. I don't know if anyone has ever seen the little movie called The Man Who Planted Trees. I saw it about a couple weeks ago at a retreat. And you really should find it on Amazon. You really should look it up. You really should purchase the movie. It's about a half hour. It won awards for one of the best animated movies it's a story about, um, begins in the year 1913. This man undertakes this long hiking trip from Provence, France, into the Alps. He's enjoying all this unspoiled wilderness. And as the narrator tells the story, this man runs out of water. He's in this very treeless, desolate valley where only wild lavender grows. There's no trace of 
civilization except for this old, empty, crumbling buildings and buildings all around. And so he finds only a dried-up well, but he's eventually saved, if you will, by this middle-aged shepherd who takes him to a spring that he knows of. He's curious about this man and why this man has chosen such a very lonely life. And so this man stays with him for a time, this shepherd, and the shepherd tells his story. And after being widowed, he's decided to restore the ruined landscape of this isolated and largely abandoned valley by his single hand. So you have this very lonely, widowed shepherd who says, you know what, I can start planting some seeds. So he cultivates this forest tree by tree. He makes holes in the ground with this curling pole, and he drops acorns into these holes. And so the young man leaves the shepherd. He returns home, later fights in the First World War. In 1920, he comes back shell-shocked and depressed. He's surprised to see these young saplings all over the place, taking root in the valley, new streams running through it where the shepherd has made dams higher up in the mountain. This young man makes his full recovery and all the peace and beauty of this land and finds out that this man is no longer a shepherd because he's worried about the sheep affecting his young trees, and so he, now he's become a beekeeper. Four decades later, this shepherd continues to plant the trees or the beekeeper. The valley's turned into this Garden of Eden. By the way, you notice the imagery? It's a Garden of Eden. All our journey is getting back to that garden where there's harmony. And everything flourishes. And by the end of the story, the valley is vibrant with life and is peacefully settled. The valley receives official protection after the First World War. And more than 10,000 people move there, all of them unknowingly owing their happiness to this one shepherd who simply started deciding, I'm going to plant trees. Goodness is the harvest that is produced from the seeds the peacemakers plant in peace. It really begins with planting these seeds of peace. Seeds that can be in the form of an apology, an act of kindness, a willingness to forgive rather than retaliate, a willingness to be an advocate for those that are hurting, defenseless and vulnerable. Those seeds can be acceptance, respect, dignity to another person. Henry Nouwen is a favorite writer of mine and He describes this peaceable kingdom and what it looks like. Here's what he writes. The marvelous vision of the peaceable kingdom in which all violence has been overcome and all men, women, and children live in loving unity with one another calls for its realization in our day-to-day lives. Instead of being this escapist dream, it challenges us to anticipate its promise, in other words, to imagine. Every time we forgive our neighbor, every time we make a child smile, every time we show compassion, to a suffering person. Every time we arrange a bouquet of flowers, there you go, offer care to tame or wild animals, prevent pollution, create beauty in our homes and gardens, and work for peace and justice among peoples and nations, we are making the vision come true. We must remind one another constantly of the vision. Whenever it comes alive in us, we will find new energy to live it out right where we are. I think what Mr. Henry Nouwen says is ultimately we begin planting these seeds right in our daily life, bringing beauty to the life around us by simply planting these seeds of love, of compassion, forgiveness, reconciliation, all in the form of peace. There's an amazing man out there by the name of 
Stevenson, Brian Stevenson. He's a lawyer, a lawyer who has worked for years now with men and women on death row, both as their lawyer and both as a way to simply advocate for them and to learn their story. He's often called American's young Nelson Mandela. He tells a story about Herbert Richardson. He says, take, for example, Herbert. He'd returned from the Vietnam War emotionally disturbed without the support and resources to overcome the trauma. And in 1977, Richardson became upset by the end of a relationship, left a homemade bomb on the porch of his ex-girlfriend's home. The woman's 11-year-old niece picked up the bomb and it exploded. She died. A year later, Richardson was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. A series of appeals was denied, and just one month before his execution, Richardson called upon Brian Stevenson to help in the 11th hour. So Brian Stevenson filed for an emergency stay of execution, but in his words, it was too late. The stay was rejected, and Richardson was scheduled to die at midnight on August 18, 1989. Stevenson went to the prison the day of the execution, and here's what he had to say, something that his client said that always haunted him. He says, I was back with him there before the execution. And he was saying to me all of this. He said, all day long, people have have been saying, what can I do to help you? Can we get you water? Can we get you coffee? Can we get you stamps to mail your last letter? And then Brian Stevenson, the lawyer, said this. I will never forget him saying to me, Brian, it's been so strange. More people have said, what can I do to help you in the last 14 hours of my life than they ever did in the first 19 years? Of my life. And then Brian Stevenson writes, I was holding his hands, standing there and thinking, yeah, where were they when you were three when your mom died? Where were they when you were seven and you were experimenting with drugs? Where were they when you were a young teenager returning from Vietnam, traumatized and drug addicted? Now that's probably a very, very dramatic story as an example, but I think it begs the question, how many seeds of love and compassion and care do we plant in those moments and take the time to listen to those folks like Mr. Richardson, who when they're going through a tough time, if we plant the seeds then, maybe just maybe something will bloom and grow that later in life they will not become the violent people they become. How many people do I walk by that I just think they're okay? How many people do I avoid because I just don't have time? How many people do I just miss because my pizza tastes so much better? I don't know. But in planting seeds, you don't know what will bloom. You just plant them, and you start at some point. I saw this church sign the other day, and i got to be really careful here because I've done the same thing. But I saw this church sign the other day that said, join us. And I've done that before. I'll even maybe post a message on Facebook that says, we're having a meeting for worship, join us. I'm sure you've seen it. But then as I looked at that sign, I began to wonder this. I wonder if the world that is hurting ever says to the church and to the faithful, look, why don't you join us? Join us in building a better world. 
Join us in creating a world that is whole and in harmony. Join us in looking out for the oppressed and the hurting. Join us, if you will, in coming up with solutions that will bring shalom to everyone. In fact, I heard a great title to a sermon this past week. The sermon was entitled, God Has Left the Building. God is out there. God is among the hurting. God is loving the world. God is among those that are seeking help, those that are lost, those that are in desperate need of people that will care. I don't know where sometimes those seeds will go, but I know in many ways I have to start at some point. Let me just share this final story, and it's, it's, it's rather honest, and then we'll close. Where did this all start? Well, it started this past weekend. It started on Friday when I saw the news, but it started about a day before. I was in the car, and I had the news turned on, and what came over the news was the report that reportedly uh, a drone had killed this gentleman or this person that goes by the name or has been tagged the name Jihadi John, one of the executioners for ISIS. And so the report said that reportedly he had been killed in a drone attack. And they described it in detail how it happened. And I remember as I was in the car listening, as soon as that report came, something inside of me did what I would call nothing more than a double fist pump. In other words, it was like I said, yes. And then I stopped. And I thought, I don't want to be that. I can't be that. I don't want to become that. And I turned the radio off, and I thought long and hard about who I had become in just that moment. And I thought, if it's that easy, how much easier it is just to go the extra mile, to rationalize, to make excuses, to justify. Friends, I don't know where you will come out on that. I really don't. All I know is that Often Christianity, often the kingdom of God, withers because sometimes I just don't try. Who can we be? Well, I had Linda bring me these today. This is in part what we've been doing all week. These are paint samples. We were told this by Alan and Jerry. Paint on a piece of cardboard. And then you can decide if this is the color that you want. This will, by the way, save you a lot of paint, all right? So we take this around, we put it up on the wall, and we just stick it up on the wall. For a while there, it was up on the wall so long, I said, let's just keep the cardboard up there and say we painted the room. It's a lot cheaper. Well, Linda would take this, and we would look at stuff, you know, new curtains, new this. How does everything combine? And then I thought about this. These samples, these swatches, were an example of the colors that we wanted. You and I in a sense, are simply swatches and samples of the kingdom of God. When we go out into the world and we live lives of joy and peace, we live lives of wholeness and forgiveness and reconciliation, we are a sample, if you will, of what the kingdom of God looks like. And often the world doesn't know what it looks like because it never sees it. We're a sample. We're a swatch. And when we live out that way of Jesus, we become a light 
as Jesus said, to the world. I take the journey with you. I don't have all the answers. I have more struggles at times than I do have answers, but I know this. I know there's a better way, and I need to be part of that better way.